The scripture actually is not going to be from Luke 2, just adds up to those of you who are upstairs. Uh, So therefore, the scripture is not going to be on the screen behind me. If you're interested in following along, you can open to the book of Exodus chapter 2, where I'll be reading verses 23 through 25, and then chapter 40, verses 32 through 35. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue, for slavery, came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then from chapter 40, beginning in verse 32. When they went into the tent of meeting... And when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You can be seated, and let's pray together. Father, as we uh, open your word this morning, we rely on its sufficiency and your Holy Spirit's ability to bring it to bear in our lives. I know, I feel very acutely today that I am insufficient for the work that is before me. So, Lord, I declare alongside your people faith and confidence in your sufficiency to do all that you will to do in our midst today. We ask that you would do it through your word, that you would speak to us, that you would give us eyes to see your glory and ears to hear your voice, that we might have a deeper and more abiding joy in you this Christmas season and every day thereafter. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, who is our Savior. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying that you came in this morning, you got a worship folder on your way in the door, you opened it up, and you said, awesome, Bruce is preaching today. So I hate to disappoint you, um, but I'm thrilled to be here with you this morning. I got the, the dreaded text message this morning that Pastor Bruce is not feeling very well and asked if I would be willing to step in and I am thrilled to have the opportunity. Truly, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, We are going to be looking at the book of Exodus, not the book of Luke this morning, uh, which is a change. Uh, And so I just invite you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus as we look at it together. I'm sure that in many of your houses, Christmas presents have begun to appear. Perhaps they're wrapped, beautifully wrapped and sitting under a tree in your living room. They're packages that make you wonder, what could possibly be inside? At our house, though, there are no packages under the tree, no gifts, no wrapping paper has made an appearance yet at our house. All the gifts that have arrived at our house, mainly from grandparents, are still wrapped and sitting in a pile in our basement. And that's because I know that as soon as we wrap some of those gifts and set them under the tree, my three-year-old is going to begin to vibrate with anticipation. It's so enticing, the wrapping paper and 
the curiosity about what could possibly be inside. He's old enough this year to know that Christmas is coming, uh, and he can read his name on the gift tags that will be on top. Last year, he was oblivious, right, to all of this. He didn't have a clue what was happening. It was just all of a sudden, someone was handing him something to unwrap, and there was something amazing inside. And this year, he remembers that and is eagerly awaiting the day uh, when he will get to unwrap something. This year, he is having to learn some patience that he didn't have to learn last year, and it's already hard for him. And we can all relate to that to some degree, because you know what it means to look for the coming of something that you've been waiting for. Whether it's graduation or retirement or reunion with a loved one, a vacation that you've been saving up for, or the present that is already wrapped under the tree in your living room with your name on it, patience is a virtue that we all have to learn at some point or another because we all know what it, what it feels like to eagerly wait for something. As we continue our journey toward Christmas this Advent season, this morning we're looking backward, way backward into the Old Testament to see how the promise of Christmas and the coming of Christ has been anticipated and even eagerly awaited for a long, long time, long before Mary and Joseph made their journey to Bethlehem. God's assurance to his people and his promise of redemption is written on literally every page of Scripture. There is not a wasted word in your Bible, all of it, every syllable of it testifies to God's promise of redemption. And as we share in the joy of every longing heart that our Savior has come into the world, we renew our anticipation for His return. And one of the ways that we can do that is by looking backward to see the way that God's promises have already been kept, to renew our confidence in the promises that are yet to come. So this morning we're looking backward at the book of Exodus, written more than a thousand years before the night that Christ was born, to see that God's desire has always been to redeem His people, and to draw close to them. Our goal this morning is going to be to take a bird's-eye view of the, look, uh, of the book of Exodus as a whole, to see how God has never forsaken us, how He will never forget us, and how He has ordained that one day He will deliver us into His own presence, and ultimately to recognize that this has always been His plan. Rather than zooming in on a specific passage of Scripture, which is what we typically do in our preaching here at Westgate Church, we're going to try to see the book of Exodus as a whole, which is a challenge, and we are not going to look at every specific scene in that book, but we're going to try and recognize the arc of the whole narrative of the book and the way that it really tells one story, and that that story is understood best in Christmas. I'm convinced that Exodus helps prepare our hearts for Christmas. Last week, we considered how the humility of Christ in his descent into the world that he made and he upholds by his own power, that his arrival in a stable in Bethlehem, that all of this demonstrates for us the sort of king that he is and the way that he will save his people. Christ, who is equal with his Father in glory, deliberately laid aside the honor that he was due in order to come into the world that he made. And not just that, but to take the form of a servant, as Paul writes in the book of Philippians, taking on flesh that he might dwell with us as one of us so that he could shed his blood for our salvation. It is a humility 
that we can scarcely comprehend. Even if we understand what it means for someone to to step down from honor in order to serve the needs of others, we can only theorize about the immeasurable heights from which the glory of Christ condescended in order to come and dwell among us. It was love that compelled Him to come and a humble heart that enabled Him to become our God who is with us. This morning, as we look at the book of Exodus, we will see that this has always been His heart and that the first Christmas when it came 2,000 years ago was the fulfillment of what all of Scripture had anticipated up to that point, what God had promised and what, what the very heart of God had long awaited and eagerly looked for. Exodus, I will admit, may seem like a, a strange book to turn, turn to during Advent. We, we had planned to look at a classic Christmas text from the, the book of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 2 tells the story of Jesus' birth. It's, it's, it's what we expect to hear during the Christmas season. I'll admit, Exodus, strange place to turn during Advent, but I believe it's a thoroughly Christmassy book. Because throughout the story that it tells, we see God's desire to be near to His people and even to dwell with us. It begins about 400 years after the end of the book of Genesis, when one small family moved to Egypt to survive a famine. They were descendants of a man named Abraham, to whom God had made a promise of blessing, that he would have a family that would become a nation of hundreds of thousands of people, God's own people. And while the people are in Egypt... Uh, his family grows. It grows so much that the Egyptians see them as both a threat and an opportunity, so they enslaved the Israelites and put them to work. And in their captivity, the people groaned, we read in chapter 2, because of their slavery, and they cried out to God for help. And their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. The first half of the book of Exodus is about the surprising way that God delivered them to freedom. Through Moses' leadership and plagues and the demonstration that Israel's God rules over the entire heavens and the earth, it's a story that perhaps we're familiar with. But the very next verse there in chapter 2 reminds us that this is a much, much bigger story than that. We read in verse 24 that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with, with Jacob. It's a reference back. Generations and generations earlier, God made promises, and he's about to begin keeping them. What's about to happen is bigger than a confrontation with Pharaoh. It is bigger than liberation from bondage and slavery in Egypt. It is a story, a chapter in the story of redemptive history that was begun centuries earlier and is moving toward an ultimate culmination in the millennia to come. God remembered his covenant promises, which is to say, not that he had forgotten them and now something has brought them back to mind. This is a way of saying that God has held this promise close and that the time has come to act on it. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 15, where God told Abraham that through him, God would create a nation and that those people would receive from him a place to call their home, a promised land in which he would bless them and that through them, he would then bless the entire world. And as he makes this covenant with Abraham, he, he also says, know for certain. He, he's telling Abraham, there's a, there's a promise within this promise. Know for certain 
that your offspring, these, these offspring that I have just told you I am going to produce in your lineage, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God knew that the family who would become the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, would be slaves in Egypt. But he promised that it would not last forever and that a day would come when he would bring them out. And now, centuries have passed, but God has not forgotten his promise. The time has come to fulfill it. The time has come to bring these people out. So this book, the book of Exodus, is part of a much larger story. And in the way that God keeps his promise of rescue to bring these people out of their slavery in Egypt, and in what happens afterward, he reveals his own heart and his love for his people. Throughout the Old Testament, and particularly here in Exodus, there are events that theologians refer to as theophanies. A theophany is the appearance of the presence of God in a stunning display of his glory and overwhelming majesty. There are lots of examples we might turn to. One memorable example is when God appeared to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says that when he sees the Lord, he sees that the train of God's temple, or the, the, the train of God's robe filled the temple, which is Isaiah's way of conveying how small he suddenly felt in God's presence. In the book of Daniel, there's a story about a mysterious appearance when three young men are thrown into a fire to be executed for their refusal to worship the Babylonian king. But when others look into the fire, expecting to see these three young men dead in the flames, they see not only that these men were alive and unharmed by the fire, but that there was a fourth man in the fire with them. David describes what he saw when he was delivered from adversaries who had sought his life when the presence of God rocked the foundations of the earth and his voice thundered from heaven. They are intense and often terrifying experiences for whoever was there to witness them. Isaiah, in his theophany scene, when he finds himself in the presence of God, did not talk about how amazing it was. Like he was standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and was just in awe of the beauty of the thing that was before him. He wasn't starstruck like he was meeting his favorite movie star. He wasn't overjoyed like he had been reunited with an old friend. Instead, in the presence of God, he was so overwhelmed and afraid that the only thing he says in that moment is, Woe is me. Theophanies show us that most of the time God shields us. By his grace, he is shielding us from his unrelenting, immeasurable, and fearsome holiness. He protects us from the blindingly bright light of his presence. For Isaiah, the glimpse that he saw of God made him afraid because he saw his own sin more clearly than he ever had before, and he figured that he was about to be destroyed for it. In the light of God's presence, he recognizes his unholiness and thinks that he is about to be annihilated for it. If it weren't for his sin, Isaiah's experience would have been different. Rather than fear, he would have felt peace. Rather than crying out, woe is me, he would have joined in the heavenly chorus 
of these bizarre beings who he sees in this vision, who are joyfully declaring the holiness of God with every breath that they have, he would have joined them if it hadn't been for his sin. It was sin that made the presence of God a fearful thing to him. We see that in the very first pages of the Bible, the same thing. After Adam and Eve succumb to temptation and pride, they disobey God. And typically, what we think is that afterward, God cast them out of the Garden of Eden, which he did. That did happen. But before that happened, they made the first move. After sin entered the world through their sin and rebellion, Genesis 3.8 says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Before God cast them out, before he has said a word to them about their disobedience and sin, they ran from him because suddenly something has changed and they fear to be in his presence. It was an immediate, instinctual response. They didn't talk about it. They didn't make a plan. They just understood when they heard his footsteps, they needed to run because they already knew that something had changed. And now it was dangerous for them to be in his presence, to stand before him. For the same reason that God's presence terrified Isaiah and made him cry out in despair, Adam and Eve are trying to put distance between them, themselves and the holiness of God. Because for them, for Isaiah... And for all of us, it is a frightening thing to behold the holiness of God. But in the theophanies of the Old Testament, in each of these scenes, God lets just a sliver of the unimaginably bright light of His holiness pierce through. So the experience is something like visiting a nuclear power plant. Perhaps you've heard me use this illustration before. Somewhere inside of a nuclear power plant is a nuclear reactor. And even though I don't know the first thing about nuclear reactors, I have seen movies. And so I know that you're not supposed to get close to them. Because whatever is happening inside of a nuclear reactor is dangerous. So that if you were to visit a nuclear power plant during your visit, the closest you could get to that nuclear reactor is the other side of a very thick concrete and lead-reinforced wall. If you were to just open the door and walk in to whatever's happening in there, you would be a goner, maybe in seconds or hours. I don't really know. What I do know is you cannot just go in there and walk around. To do so would mean certain death for you because the power that is at work on the other side of that wall is something that no person can withstand. It would simply unmake you. The same is true with the presence of God. His holiness is a force that is beyond all human strength, and our sin makes it radioactive to us. Yet, God, with great care, does open the door, just a crack, just enough to see what is on the other side and to see that it is unlike anything we've ever known or any might that exists in the created order that we're familiar with. He does this not to make us afraid, but because his desire is to restore what was lost in the failure of Adam and Eve, to turn danger and fear into joy and peace. What we see in these moments is that God's heart is to be near to us. 
to invite us to know him, not just academically, but to be part of his family, to bask in his holiness and to enjoy his presence rather than to run from him and to live in fear. One scholar explains that theophanies are particularly intense and spectacular expressions of a broader theological theme, namely that God undertakes to be present with his people. We sometimes think of Christianity as a commitment to a lifestyle or submission to a set of rules or intellectual assent to a set of theological and doctrinal ideas. But what we see in Scripture is that God thinks first and foremost in terms of relationship. It is a relationship that has been tarnished by sin when humanity turned from God and ran from Him in order to go our own way and pursue wickedness and pride. But in great and inconceivable, incomparable love for us, God overcomes sin by grace to be near to us, to restore what was lost when Adam and Eve ran from God. In the book of Exodus, on every single page, we see that central desire of God's heart play out. When he speaks from a burning bush, he invites Moses to come near, and he warns him that he's standing on holy ground, the, the presence of God. But as he draws close, the passage says that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He understood that the holiness of God is a fearsome thing. But God calls Moses to be his servant and prophet, the one who will go to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and then lead the Hebrew people out of their bondage there. When Moses objects to this, he gives several excuses about why he shouldn't be given this assignment. And at every turn, God's response is some variation of the phrase, I will be with you. When Pharaoh refuses to free the enslaved Israelites, he does so as one who thinks of himself as a God among men, worthy of worship and the fear of his subjects. But God sends plague after plague after plague, each one designed to demonstrate the weakness of Pharaoh and to prove that there is only one God in heaven. And at multiple points along the way, God explains that he is doing all of this so that Egypt and indeed the entire world will know his name. Later, when the Israelites are finally released from Egypt, God tells them to turn back. They're, they're on their way. They're like, they've got their sights set on the horizon and they are going for it. They're free. But God tells them to turn around and to go back and make camp in a specific place along the bank of the Red Sea. But rather than giving instructions to Moses, he demonstrates to them that he is with them, that he is present with them in their flight by appearing before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that he can lead the people specifically to the place that he has identified where they should make camp. And while they're encamped there, the Egyptians have a change of heart and Pharaoh decides that he wants to recapture the Israelites. So he sends his army to chase after them. God, of course, knew that this was going to happen because he, he reveals to us that he knew this was going to happen because he had had his people turn back and to camp at a specific place, a place where he knew that they would have no route of escape. The reason that he did this 
was that the people, despite everything they had just seen, all these plagues and demonstrations of God's power, were still convinced that the real power that they needed to fear was from Pharaoh and his army. So when the Egyptians came into view, they're riding their chariots over the hill, descending on the Israelites who are encamped against the sea with no place to run, the people panic and they fear greatly, we read. And they ask Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out into the wilderness to die here? Didn't we tell you back in Egypt to leave us alone and let us serve as slaves? Because it is better for us, they tell Moses, to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the middle of nowhere. They were afraid of the Egyptians, but then God speaks. And tells them, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And then he caused the sea itself behind them to part, to make a pathway for them, and they walked across it on dry land. Afterward, when the Egyptians tried following, the sea crashed down on them. And the whole thing happens in this way because God told them to encamp at a specific spot so that when the Egyptians arrived, the Israelites would have nowhere to run except into the providential care of God for them. And with the defeat of Pharaoh, God proved that he has no rival. He showed his people that he is and always will be for them, that he cares about them that he will be their defender. A few chapters later, the people arrive at Mount Sinai, where the second half of the book takes place. And at that mountain, God comes to meet with his people in one of the most dramatic theophanies in the whole Bible. We read that the mountain was shrouded in a cloud, and that when God's presence descended onto the top of the mountain, the whole mountain itself shook, and the voice of God thundered out across the land. The people who are sitting at the foot of the mountain, are terrified because of this. It was yet another glimpse of the might and awesome glory of God. They had just seen that power on display in the decisive defeat of Pharaoh and his army, and now they are frightened because it's right in front of them. Then Moses goes up onto the mountain. All the people stay at their camp at the base of the mountain. Moses goes up to meet with the Lord And while he's there, he builds up his courage, and he asks to see God's glory. It's something that the people down at the foot of the mountain were begging to be protected from. They were afraid, because to them, God's presence is still a threat. But Moses has begun to understand the heart of God, and how he is at the same time both just and gracious. That he is opposed to sin, that he cannot overlook it, that he will answer it with unrelenting fury, and that he also shows mercy to those who know that they need it. So he asks to see God's glory. God replies, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. I will make and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. So he takes Moses and he sets him in a gap in the rocks where he's shielded as though by a giant lead concrete reinforced wall, and he passes by, and Moses saw a glimpse of his back. He shielded Moses from his glory, 
And then he drew near to him in a way that he could survive. And he did both of these things because of his grace and mercy. Mercy that he has extended to Moses and to his people. And after that, the main thing that happens in the second half of the book of Exodus is that God gives incredibly specific instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a a tent that could be packed up and moved around from place to place as the Israelites continued their journey from Egypt. It was a sanctuary, the center of Israel's religious practice and the place where they would worship and make their offerings to God. And it was still in use until the people could settle in their own land generations later and build a temple from stone. The design of the tabernacle was basically three spaces. The outer space is like a courtyard. It contained an altar for sacrificial offerings and some other things. Inside of that courtyard is an enclosure that held other items for worship and religious ceremony. And that was a holy place that God set apart for specific things. And then within that was an even smaller space called the Holy of Holies, It was divided from the rest of the tabernacle by a heavy curtain, a barrier that isolated it from everything else. And it was in that room that the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is something called the mercy seat, where the presence of God would come to be among his people. In fact, the word tabernacle itself just means dwelling. That's all it means. It is the place where God's presence dwells among his people. About a third of the book of Exodus is taken up by the detailed, incredibly detailed instructions for its construction and the purposes of each part of its design. So we're certainly missing a lot if when we think of the book of Exodus, all we're really thinking about is Moses going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Instead, the structure of the book as a whole is a pattern for all of redemptive history, that God in grace wills and ordains to deliver his people from bondage, but not only that, to deliver them into his presence. What we see on every page of this book is the way that God invites his people to know him, to see his glory, and then then in the design for the tabernacle that he gives them, to see his commitment to dwell with them. The whole book is about the ways that God mercifully draws sinners and rebels close to himself by releasing them from bondage to sin and then drawing them close. It's about how he makes a people for himself by works of grace. All of it, a whole book, the message of the whole book, though, comes to a crescendo in its final paragraph. The people have built the tabernacle. They have followed God's very detailed instructions. They've placed the ark inside the Holy of Holies. They have followed all of the the specific parameters for exactly how it's to be put together, where furniture is to be placed and how it's to be used and how to make offerings at the altar in the courtyard. And then it says in chapter 40, Moses finished the work. It's done. The tabernacle completed And then, amazingly, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Amazing. It's what the whole book has been building up to. When the presence of God would finally dwell among his people, he has delivered them from bondage and given them his own presence. 
It's what the hope of the whole book has been building to. When the expanse of separation that was created by sin would finally be overcome, when the people would no longer need to fear the glory of God, but would instead be able to approach it with joy. Everything seems to be exactly as it should, except for one small detail. After reading that the glory of God filled the tabernacle, the passage says that Moses was not able to enter the tent. And there's no explanation given for that. That's it. That's how the book ends. So even though God is drawn near to, the, to his people, there's still something wrong. Still something standing in the way. The presence of God is still dangerous. It isn't like it was before Adam and Eve ran from God's presence. At the very highest moment in this book, the moment when everything else in this amazing story of deliverance is answered, and we see the crescendo that everything has been building up to, we are left waiting and anticipating what the book anticipates, knowing that God's desire is to dwell with his people, but wondering how it could possibly come about. Until, on a quiet night in Bethlehem, over a millennia later, God came into the world himself. In humility, he took on flesh and entered the world that he made. The king of all kings, the maker and the keeper of the universe itself, who holds both planets in their orbits and atoms together that make up the planets themselves. The one with the power and rule over empires and kingdoms like Egypt, whose very presence makes mountains shake, makes the brave afraid, and makes the proud kneel in reverence. This God who reveals himself in the events of the Exodus and who demonstrates that his heart's desire is to restore a relationship with people who have scorned his goodness and glory and run from him, was born as a helpless child in an unimportant town, the parents were the subjects of a ruthless empire and a malicious king. It is the ultimate, the ultimate theophany, the ultimate expression of God's will to be near to his people, to dwell with them, when he literally came to dwell among us. And it is the answer to the longing that we feel at the end of the book of Exodus, when Moses could not go into the place of God's presence. He couldn't go in because, for him, the same thing that had always made God's presence dangerous remained. The same reason that God said, you can't look at my face and not be annihilated by it. That problem still persisted. Moses was still full of sin, full of pride, full of the impulse that had made Adam and Eve turn from God's good rule. He, along with everyone else in Israel, could only get so close to the place where God's presence dwelt among them. But the hope of Christmas is that God keeps his promise of deliverance from powers even greater than Egypt. Taking on flesh, the Son of God became one of us, so that with our blood in his veins, it might be spilled for our salvation. And in that moment, the curtain, that heavy curtain that had kept people safe from the Holy of Holies, that divided it off from the entire rest of the world, that curtain was torn in two at the moment of Christ's death. And in Christ's name, the people of God are swept into the fullness of his glory and grace where they no longer fear or say, woe is me, but instead rejoice. By grace, through faith, God counts as ours the righteousness of his Son so that we can enter his presence with joy and not fear.
For ancient Israel, it was hope in the, the future coming of a deliverer. For us, it is the hope of his return. Looking for a day that is described in the last chapter of the whole Bible when we read that no longer will there be anything accursed, which is to say that nothing will need to fear the holiness of God. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be among his people, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Moses couldn't do that. We will. And he does now. His name will be on them. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. It is the day that we long for and await with eager anticipation. What's amazing to me is that God longs for that day too. In fact, God's gladness at the coming of that day, when the relationship with his people is fully restored and redeemed, he longs for that day more than we will ever know. What Exodus helps us see is that ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God looked ahead to the joyful day in which all of his people are gathered together in his presence. When every fear is dismissed, every injustice answered, every wrong set right, and every broken thing is mended. When the corrupting influence of, of sin in the world is undone forever. If you're unsure about Christianity, maybe you're listening to this, you're listening to the promises of the Bible about a day that's coming when there is no fear, no injustice, no pain, no sadness, and maybe you feel like all of this sounds too good to possibly be true. But I want to invite you to consider that maybe you are here this morning because the God of the universe is at work in your life. We've seen in Scripture this morning that He is capable of and indeed does organize the events of all of history to bring about His good purposes in our lives. That the story of Exodus is merely one chapter in a very long story of redemption. And that perhaps He has ordained that you are here in this building this morning to hear His voice calling your name. To recognize that perhaps... He has had you in mind for longer than you could possibly know. That when he was revealing his glory to the nations in the book of Exodus, he was thinking about you too. That when he saw his son laid in a manger in Bethlehem, 1,400 years later, he had you in mind. And when Christ hung on a cross 33 years after that, it was for you. And that as you pause to consider whether maybe really is true. He waits to meet you with an eager anticipation that defies our understanding, that surpasses every feeling of joyful anticipation that we have ever felt in our lives. Exodus helps deepen our joy in the good news of Christ's birth because it helps us to see that his plan of salvation is long in the making. When we read this book, we see God's heart and recognize that it is and has always been for us and not against us. As the Hebrew people walked out of bondage and into the presence of God, they wondered, they wondered, perhaps like you are, whether it was too good to be true, whether this was some trick, whether they were being played somehow. When the mountains shook, they feared for their lives, and they wondered whether they were better off back in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule than under God's rule. But then, on a dark night, in a small town, a virgin gave birth to a child who silenced those fears forever, who fulfilled God's promises for his people. And all of God's people knew that the coming of this child 
God's own son into the world changed everything forever. Because God laid aside his heavenly crown so that he could dwell among his people, so that he could draw near to you, so that he could be one of his people, so that with our blood in his veins, he could accept God's holy wrath against our sin, to stand in our place, to set us free from the chains that once held us, the slavery to sin that had once held us, so that in his name we could come to the mountain, the mountain of his presence, but not in fear, to climb to the very top as Moses once did, with a joyful confidence both in God's righteous justice and in his abundant mercy, and to ask, as Moses once did, that we might see God's glory. And then, to behold, in his presence, that which our eyes were made to see, what our ears were made to hear, what our hearts were made to love, and then to enjoy it forever. Exodus helps us see the heart of God. And this Advent It helps us respond to him with the joyful praise of those who know that he has come so far to deliver us into his presence. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we pray that you would give us joy in knowing that your heart is to save us and to deliver us to safety into your very presence. We stand in awe of that promise this morning. From the beginning, your will has always been to bring rebels and sinners like us to receive forgiveness and grace. And so there is nothing we have to give you in return but the joyful praise of thankful hearts, and we pray that you would write that joy on our hearts as we draw nearer and nearer to Christmas this year. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son. It is in his name that we draw close to you today, and it is by your grace. Amen.